the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Go to the Star Movie. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Alexandra Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. Yesterday, Pastor Ray interviewed me and asked me some very pointed questions about my testimony and how I overcame 
sin through faith in Jesus Christ. And today, we're going to hear from Pastor Ray about his testimony. And just like yesterday, you're welcome to call in during this broadcast. The phone number is 877-534-0780. That's 877-534-0780. Thank you. So, Pastor Ray, let's talk about how you came to experience this full deliverance of sin in Jesus. Was this something that you grew up learning? How did you come to this understanding? No, I didn't grow up knowing this. It was very different as a child. In my church, I was taught that a person was saved by faith in Jesus and then hard work. So you knew you came to Jesus and he accepted you and received you, but you could not be saved if you didn't overcome your sin. So they always referred to it as you're saved, but there's a string attached. And the string is you have to work as hard as you can to overcome your sin. So basically, and I was raised in a Seventh-day Adventist church, The illustration is a rowboat, and one oar is faith, and the other oar was works. So you're saved by faith and works. And the way that worked out practically for me as a child was that I had to work as hard as I could, but it was understood kind of by everybody, by a wink, that you were going to have to work the rest of your life, and you would never achieve it. So it was a bit like saying, You're saved, but not really, and you have to work as hard as you can. You do your best, and God will make up the difference. That was always troubling to me as a child because I never knew what my best was. It seemed like an impossible goal. So when you were a child, you did have an interest in trying to be saved. I believe that every man... Every woman, when they're born, has placed in them a burning of God, a burning of the Holy Spirit. Genesis 3.15 talks about this, the first promise of a Savior, where there is enmity between the woman and the devil or the serpent. It's the first promise that Jesus will come. But in that promise is included that there will be a small window for every one of us to come to Jesus. We're not totally captive by sin. Yes, we are completely evil, but there is a window of opportunity to come to Jesus. And I experienced that window as a child, as a burning in my heart an intense desire to belong to Jesus. So was there a specific moment or a specific event where you first noticed this burning desire? Not really. I grew up with this. It was a constant companion with me. Perhaps it was because of the intense religious background. Our father, dad, dad, 
led us in Bible study every morning and every night, family worship. Uh, On the weekends, church was paramount beginning on Friday night. Uh, As a Seventh-day Adventist, it was much of the Saturday was given to worship. So there was a very strong, powerful influence in my life toward righteousness, toward Jesus. But I could not overcome my sin. And as a child, that was very troublesome to me. And I remember when I was maybe seven years old, I went to a a revival meeting. They called it an evangelistic meeting, but only church people were there. And the pastor preached about sin and said we would be judged before God. And there would come a time when we have to stand before God without sin. But they didn't explain how that could happen except by hard work. So I fell under very deep conviction. I remember crying all the way home in the car. And then at home, continuing to cry, and my mother and father calling me, saying, Raymond, what's wrong? Are you hurting? Are you sick? No. Well, what's wrong? Well, I'm a sinner. Well, what do you mean you're a sinner? Well, I get angry with Roger, and I get angry with Don. And I do mean things to them. And I get angry with you and Mom. And I hate you sometimes. And I know that's sin. And I look at the comics, and I know that I'm not supposed to do that. You've told me, leave the comics alone. I said, hidden under my mattress, I have comic books. I know I'm not supposed to look at them, but they're fun. So I know I'm a sinner, and I know I'm going to go to the judgment, and I know I'm going to be condemned before God for my sin. My mom and dad very kindly led me to get rid of the comic books and to repent, and I did. And I believe that was the day I was converted. But no one ever taught me anything but gradualism. Now, what do I mean by gradualism? That sin is overcome slowly, struggling, one sin after another, and that finally... I could be free. The sin would be removed. And somehow it was supposed to happen by the blood of Jesus, but I missed all of that. It was just hard work for me. So that burning was in my heart, but then came another burning that was even more powerful. And that was the burning to be accepted in high school. To be accepted by who? To be accepted by the other students. My parents knew that I had decided I wanted to be a minister. And they wanted their children to have Christian education. And so they sent me to a boarding academy in Mount Vernon, Ohio. So basically, I left home when I was 13 and never returned except for short vacations. And in that atmosphere... I was a country boy, and these were all pretty sophisticated people. 
and I felt like I was odd, strange. And in fact, I was, because there was this side of me that only wanted Jesus, but on the other side, I only wanted to be accepted, and I wanted to be successful. So why did you see wanting to be successful in conflict with wanting Jesus? Because my wanting to be successful had to do with my self-image, my self-esteem, my pride. It had to do with people acknowledging me and, and recognizing that I was important. So even in high school, I began to preach, go to churches and preach, and I would be acknowledged as this young preacher with great promise. So why did you decide that you wanted to be a preacher? I wanted to serve God. There was a burning call in my heart to serve Jesus. But there was a second burning in my heart to be successful, and I said, okay, I can do that as a pastor. So you're saying that you felt a call from God to be a preacher, but then that was kind of muddied by this ambition that you had or this desire to be somebody, and so you got off track? Yes, very much so. So by the time I had graduated from seminary, I was traveling around the country and speaking in venues of three and 4,000 people at a time. I was very much in demand as a seminar leader and as a, as a youth speaker, camp meeting speaker, traveling around the country doing this. But all of it was just feeding that desire in my heart to be successful. So how would you describe your spiritual state during this time when you were in high school and then once you went into seminary? I would describe it saying the conflict between the image of myself and my pride and on the other hand a very honest, sincere burning in my heart to, to love and serve Jesus. And they would fight one with another. It was an intolerable battle in my soul. And I've continued in that battle for much of my life. Uh, and Jesus would step in and utterly devastate the pride. How did he do that? Well, in the Adventist church, I was the pastor of the Rockville Seventh-day Adventist church. And when I went to that church, it had just experienced a great split. And there were about eight people in the church. And after five years, it had grown and was a very large congregation. And I was very proud of that. Um, when you say you were proud of it, do you mean that you felt like you made it happen? That it wasn't God who grew the church? Of course. It was my guerrilla marketing. It was my skill. It was my preaching ability. It was my talent. God was not in it. So why wasn't God in it? Because it was about me. It was about my success. I was a hireling who had a burning in his heart for holiness and who preached holiness. And when that all came crashing down, president that we called uh, 
the German shepherd because he bit everybody. I'm, I left the Adventist church and went out and, and started my own independent congregation. But again, it was about the great struggle to be successful, but now to build my own church. And so I went to Robert Schuller's workshops. I became more of a Dutch Reformed theologian. I wanted both to serve Jesus and to be successful. And that theme has played out in my life. Until today, there is no desire in my soul to be successful. And in fact, I'm doing things that will assure that I am not successful. Because I'm following Jesus now. I'm doing what Jesus tells me to do. And am I saying that you can't be successful and follow the burning in your heart for Jesus in the modern church? Yep, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because the modern church is about ego, it's about success, it's about entertainment, it is not about holiness, it's not about life in the Spirit. There is a level in the church today, the, the same battle's going on. I want my way, I want Jesus. Well, it sounds to me, too, that part of the problem could be in how we're defining success. So I don't think that there's anything wrong with wanting to be successful in the sense of seeing God's kingdom come and seeing souls saved, but that may mean a lot of humiliation on the part of the pastor or the minister. And I think that's what you're saying We is pastors want to avoid that kind of humiliation. It's been about bodies, bucks, and bricks in America. And that does not do much for the kingdom of God. What are bodies, bucks, and bricks? Build your membership so you can have the money, so you can build the facility, and you can be accomplished. You can do all the things that are recognized by the world as being successful. And I wanted that. So you see it even as the church trying to appear successful in the eyes of the world. Absolutely. Mm, rather than to be successful in the eyes of God. Absolutely. And so there are pastors, and I talk to them often, who are exhausted trying to meet all of the emotional demands of running the machinery, keeping everybody happy, preventing conflict in the congregation. It's not about lifting Jesus up. He doesn't have time to pray. He doesn't have time to study. He doesn't have time. He's got to make it work. And I have totally thrown that away. I won't walk that way. So I wanted to return to something you said a little earlier. You said that you believed that you gradually had to overcome one sin at a time, and through a lot of hard work, you'd finally be able to get the victory. So while you were going through all of this, trying to be a successful pastor, building first the Adventist church and then starting your own independent church, were you still trying to engage in that battle, or did you just give up and say that you didn't really think sin mattered? No, I still thought sin mattered, but frankly, 
It was about loving everybody. It was about accepting everybody. It was about being tolerant. It was about announcing what the truth is, but not judging anybody. Uh, Church discipline was not something that I could participate in. I didn't believe in the shepherding churches. They were humanistic in their shepherding, and it was ugly. Um, So... And and no, I want to come back to something you said. You may have misunderstood. I never really believed it was possible to leave all of my sin. Uh, it was a battle you had to always engage in. And so you went to seminars, you went to workshops, you read the scriptures for a, a few minutes every morning, and you said your prayers, and you shot arrows at heaven. But no, you never really gained the victory, and you just soldier on so then what was the purpose of battling if you never believed you could win because god would make up the difference you did your best and god made up the difference and that's such an ugly heresy it is totally wrong it's ugly and then what happens is you settle down and you enjoy life and you enjoy sin And so you can hang out with the guys. I mean, one pastor, I met him at the bank one afternoon, and he said to me, hey, Ray, I'm glad I saw you. The action flicks always come out on Friday, and I always go to see one of them. You want to come with me? I said, are you kidding me? I can't go to that and then be ready to preach on Sunday. So... There is that attitude in the church that you can go to the football, you can go to the baseball, you can do all of the entertainment of the world, you can go to the movies, you can do the video games, you can do everything you want to do. You're still saved. Jesus loves you. He understands. So what is it that you find so particularly offensive about this type of entertainment? The movies, the the professional sports? Well, I'll tell you how I use them. The battle in my own soul between the burning of the Holy Spirit in me and the lust for success were in such conflict that when the battle got too strong, I'd go see a movie to relax or I'd go to the football game to relax. I could veg there. So you're saying you saw it as a way to try to soothe your conscience. It was a hidey cave of darkness. It's not of Jesus. There is no such thing as neutral ground on this earth. All neutral ground is controlled by the devil. We are either totally given over to Jesus or we're walking in sin and we're judgment bound. So while you were in this internal conflict between the burning zeal and the desire to be successful and you were always struggling, did you feel like there was, how did you feel you were with Jesus? Did you feel that Jesus accepted you or did you have a disquietness in your spirit? I always had a sense, uh, and I, I guess I'll describe it this way. 
the Lord put me in a position where I'd gone to California to open a new church. And in California, the Lord shut down every attempt to open that church. And so I was in great financial strain. I spent all the money I had. I had done every fundraiser I could do. I had come to an utter end. And so day after day, I would lay on my face in my prayer room. I'm talking 8, 10, 12 hours a day praying. But when I would begin to pray, I saw this fence between me and the throne room of God. I was fenced out of God's presence. I couldn't pierce that fence. And it finally came to a head as there was no money. And I finally lay on my face before God and said, Okay, Lord, I came here because I believed you called me. I can't raise any more money. I can't pay for anything. I'm going to lay on my face in this bedroom until you answer, or I'm going to die, and they can come find my rotting body in this bedroom. Because I have nowhere to go except you. So I really came to a crisis point where it was, okay, is it Jesus or isn't it? And my late wife came in. It was early hour of the morning, and I'd been weeping before the Lord and was just a mess. And she said, Ray, come get a bath, and you'll feel better. So I went in the bathroom. She'd run the water. I climbed in, and there were these uh, sliding glass doors that let light through, but you couldn't see through. I got in the tub and I was crying. I couldn't stop crying. And I began to literally scream at God. I'm going to die. And he answered like we're talking to each other right now. And he said, good, I've been waiting for you to die. And anger just sprang up in my heart. How can you say this to me? Look what I've been through. And he said to me, you were bought at a price. You are not your own. And everything in me just crumbled. I just pulled right back into myself. And I said, okay, what do you want, God? And he answered and he said, will you receive from my hand only that which I will give you? And I said, yes. And it was like he was leaving. I could sense his physical presence leaving. And the door was going to shut. And I said, is that all? And he said, no. Turn your television off. And he was gone. And I was literally unable to speak. I was just overwhelmed. I got out of the bathtub. My wife was very concerned. What's wrong? What happened? What's going on? 
And all I could say was, did you hear God? No. Did you hear me screaming? No. I haven't heard a sound. And I recognized I'd been in a heavenly place, in a vision. We had no money. We'd used the ketchup for soup. We'd eaten all the condiments. We were hungry. And I said, Lord, I'll accept from your hand only what you give me. And the doorbell rang. And a man was at the door saying, I'm embarrassed, but God told me to come here and give you food. Do you need food? You have a beautiful home. I said, yes, we need food. And he brought in 16 bags of groceries. And that night we feasted. Um, So what changed as a result of that experience that you had with God? Well, first, God began to supply my financial needs through very unusual means, and we don't have time to talk about all that. But the big thing that changed is that I no longer had a desire to be somebody. I no longer had a desire to walk in any sin. I was clean. I was washed. I was sanctified. And later I learned from Wesley the term was entirely sanctified. Now, should that have happened when I was converted? Yes, I believe it should have and could have. I believe it did in your case. But in my case, the teaching was so wrong I'd never heard anybody teach that you could walk without sin. And as I read John Wesley's writings, suddenly for the first time, I began to find that was what he taught. And then I read stories of Azuzu Street, and I read all their newsletters. I have copies of all the newsletters written at Azuzu Street, the founding of Pentecostalism. And I discovered that all of those our dear brother Seymour, who founded the ministry at Azuzu Street, and all of those involved believed that a man or woman had to walk clean with no sin to enter salvation. And when did you start reading these materials? I began soon after uh, this time. I was still in the desert. Uh, I had no ministry. It was seven years with no ministry, just reading the word. Five of those years, we were homeless, living with a a non-Christian family who took us in. And literally, we worked as servants for them. They didn't ask us to, but we did. And we prayed in the money to buy food uh, with with no ministry, except reading the word and ministering to Jesus. And it was during that time that I got a call from a brother in California. And he said, I, I hear that you are a man of prayer. Could I come and pray with you? It was out of the blue. Ray Brigham, the founder of the National Day of Prayer, I would say. Uh, he used to hold prayer summits around the country. And he said, 
I'll arrive such and such a time. I picked him up at the airport. We spent the day in prayer, and then he said, I'd like to take you to New York City to meet David Wilkerson. Would you like to meet him? Yes, Pastor David Wilkerson. I would love to meet him. So we went, and my heart was just bonded with Pastor David Wilkerson, and he became the supporter who financially allowed us to open the National Prayer Chapel. God brought that to us sovereignly. So I want to talk some more about what was happening to you internally through this process. So you said that after the Lord asked you, will you receive from my hand only what I choose to give you, that at that point you were no longer concerned about being successful. So did did the sh- that internal struggle you were talking about was that still happening or did no, it stop? It was over. And so then what was your experience instead? The burning only grew larger and greater. Uh, I was no longer interested in building a great church. Instead, I was earnestly concerned about winning the lost and teaching a handful of people how to walk holy before the Lord. Um, No longer was I consumed with the passion to be somebody. So you're saying that before this point you didn't have a, a sharp concern for winning the lost? No, I didn't. That's strange, isn't it, to, as a pastor? Yes. Um, part of what happened in seminary was the question asked, what is the work of a pastor? And basically the answer that I was given was a pastor is a program manager. A pastor is a coach. Um, a pastor is a mentor. Well, That may be true, but it's not the work of a pastor. The work of a pastor is the same as the work of every Christian, and that is to be a fisher of men and to make disciples of them. There's only one commission. There's only one call. So if you are not a fisher of men, and if you are not making disciples of all men, You are not a Christian. That seemed very simple to me after this time. And so that's what drove me to come to this radio station. And now for many years, I've been doing radio in Washington, calling men and women to repent of their sin, to be made pure, to allow the burning of the Holy Spirit in their heart. That's what I'm still doing. So how is it that you were able to stop sinning after you finally gave up wanting to be somebody when you weren't able to stop sinning before? Alexandra, I no longer had a desire to sin. It was over. In fact, there was a deep hatred in my heart toward the devil and toward sin and darkness. And I went back, pardon me, I went back a few times just to test. And it made me almost ill. I just didn't want to go there. It was not attractive to me anymore. 
the burning of the Holy Spirit in my heart had overcome all of that. And I read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation during this time probably maybe 50 times. I just devoured the Word of God. And I'm still doing that. I devour the Word of God. I'm not interested in the things of darkness. I'm not interested any longer in the novels. I'm not interested in the entertainment. I'm not interested in anything of this of this earth except Jesus and the work of the gospel. So that's where my heart is. So what advice would you give someone who said, well, I feel like I'm where you were at before, and how do I get to that place where I hate sin and I don't want to sin anymore and I'm consumed with a desire for Jesus and for the gospel? A key part of that is to make decisions to cut off the world, the flesh, and the devil. Simply cut it off and instead earnestly pursue Jesus and the word of God. And as you do that, God will meet you and he'll begin to speak to you. Part of the journey that we've not spoken of is that time when I was so involved in trying to build my church and God was just not there. So a key part is to recognize whether the presence of God is really with you and whether that burning in your heart, which God places in all men and all women, it's not just for me, it's in all people, but for many it's been so beaten down by the lust of the world that they don't recognize the burning of God in their heart anymore. So the junk has to be cleared away. The, the land, the fallow land has to be plowed up. And you do that by making a decision, I am going to seek Jesus with all of my heart. And I'm going to turn away from everything that causes me to not want to be with Jesus. So how does one do that in a way where they're not just trying really hard? Okay. In First John, the third chapter... Verse 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. So part of what I began to do is experience in that burning of the Spirit in my heart that it was God's love for me. I knew God loved me. And that love drew me to him. And that love caused me to say, when I go do this, the love of God is drained away. When I go over here and I go sit in the presence of the Lord and I read the scriptures and I pray, the love of God grows in my heart. So you're saying your actions are motivated by a love for God. Yes. Yes. The tender mercy of God is so overwhelming to me. This morning, 
I got up and went to the prayer closet. And I just began to pray and say, Lord, I've come into your presence because I love you. Now, I was never out of his presence. But in the prayer closet, there's a coming together with him. There's an intimacy with him that I don't find when I'm just out doing everything he's told me to do. I guess the difference between a husband and a wife who mutually do the work of the day and they love each other compared to the intimacy between a husband and wife when they come together as one. When you go in the prayer closet, you come together with God as one. And you begin begin to be overwhelmed by that incredible tender mercy of his And again this morning, I said to him, Lord, I can't bring revival to Washington. I don't know what to say on the radio today. I don't know. I have no ability to bring about the building of your church. But Lord, you do. And so I'm watching you. And now things are happening that are so spectacular that God is doing. Example, the revival meetings that are going to begin on the 6th of December, I'm sorry, on the 4th of December. I couldn't have arranged the location. I couldn't have arranged all kinds of things that God is bringing into place to make these meetings successful. But it will not be me. It's the Spirit of God. Yes, and this might also be a good time to mention that Another thing that we've seen as a movement of God is that this Friday from 6 to 7, Don Crow has invited invited Pastor Ray to be on his show. So tune in. It's 105.1 FM. It's Wave's FM dial from 6 to 7 this Friday. And you will hear Pastor Ray and Don Crow talking about revival. About revival. In Washington. I could not have arranged that. That That was was Jesus. That was Jesus Mm -hmm. who arranged that. And I could name many, many other things that he's setting in place. But it's none of me, and it's all of him. And I want to continue reading. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And then, of course, he goes on to say in verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. So I'm living in Jesus And I made the decision to purify myself by following the lead of the Spirit and just letting go of everything of darkness. And as I've let go of those emotions, those personal goals, I mean, today, I'm totally in Jesus' hands. I don't have any ambitions. I'm trusting Jesus, and I am laboring for souls at his command. And he's in charge. So he says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. 
no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So I can't know Jesus. I can know religion. I can know struggle. I can know theology. But I cannot know Jesus if I continue to walk in my sin. And so if if someone were to say to me, Ray, is there any area in your life where you're still struggling with darkness? I would say unequivocally, absolutely no. It's over. I'm done with it. So let's just be clear what you're saying. So you're saying that you struggled with sin for much of your life, and then finally you came to a crisis point, which was when you were in California in the bathtub. And at that point, you made a decision that you weren't going to have any demands on God, and you were going to put yourself totally in his hands. And so now you're saying from that point forward, you've been walking without sin, like it says in the passage you just read. Yes. So you've had the victory over sin now for several decades. Yes. Now, part of this, someone has said to me, don't you see how obnoxious this walk is? And when I said, but God is leading me this way, they said, no, God will not ever lead someone this way. You are shaming the name of Jesus. And I said to them, when the crowd is clapping, I just follow Jesus. And when the crowd is booing, I just follow Jesus. And when no one is interested, I just keep following Jesus. I don't have any other plan. That's my life. So some people get very angry with me. Why are you always talking about sin, Pastor? Well, because it's time for you to leave your sin. It's not as though the blood of Jesus is not adequate to cleanse you entirely and to put your feet on a road of victory and enter into the glorious mercy and love of Jesus at such a level. And yet by personality... There are still hints of pleasing people. And I continue to cry out to the the Lord about that and say, Lord, don't let there be even one iota of pleasing left in my personality. My personality had to change. I was a teddy bear until I got pushed and then I became a grizzly bear. Well, I don't want to be a teddy bear and I don't want to be a grizzly bear. I want to be a Jesus man. Yes. Does that make sense? It does. As I listen to your testimony, it sounds like for you, the the main point of repentance was on this issue of, of ambition and wanting to be somebody. Um, but I think for those listening, there could be many different points. But I think the idea is there is some point on which each person, if they haven't overcome their sin yet, there is some point at which they are resisting and they don't want to give that point to God. So for me, I was never really consumed with being somebody, but I didn't want to be a Christian. I didn't want to have to admit that Jesus was God. That was a big point for me. And we know 
from the Bible that a lot of the early church, they were focused on proving that Jesus was the Messiah and not somebody else because there were false Christs at that time or some people believed the Messiah was still coming. So I want the people listening to hear that it may not be the same issue for them that it is for you, but that there has to be that complete giving over to Jesus. And there can't even be one point on which we refuse to yield. Yeah, it may be on pornography. It may be on alcohol. It may be on pot. It may be on anger and bitterness and resentment towards someone. Now, please, as I've walked this, the Holy Spirit has revealed areas in my life that he wanted to renovate and change. And I simply yielded that quickly to him so that it was not sin. It was an uncovering and saying, okay, now change this. Okay, Lord, it's done. That will continue in my life. It's sanctification. Sanctification is not leaving your sin. That happens at conversion and then entire sanctification. It happens when the old man is finally put down and no longer rules in your heart at all. But let's be very clear. Our conscience tells us when we're sinning. Yes. And all of us have the power to turn from our sins. All of us have the ability in the blood of Jesus to say, I'm finished with sin. That's what Genesis 3.15 was all about. So that bitter spirit has to be brought to the cross. The pornography has to be brought to the cross. Anything that stands in the way, he says, purify yourself. How do you purify yourself? By bringing everything to the cross and letting it be crucified with Jesus. So do I make mistakes? I make mistakes. But sin, by definition, is voluntary. It's volitional. It's what I choose to do. I don't choose to sin. I heard one definition I liked. It says, sin is what you do when you know better. A mistake is what you do when you don't know better. That's good. I think it's right on point. Well, we're almost out of time. Is there anything else you'd like to share in these final minutes? Yes, I'd like to share that this walk with Jesus is one of absolute, exquisite pain in separation from the world. But then comes the incredible, overwhelming joy and peace. In the prayer closet this morning, as I brought before the Lord all of the issues of the day and submitted them, Absolute peace ruled in my heart. No fear. Just quietness in the strength of Jesus. I trust him. And the burning only increases in my heart. Now that, I don't know how to define that burning. It's love. It's passion. It's self-sacrifice. It's the most wonderful thing in the world to love Jesus. I want you who are listening 
to come into this incredibly wonderful place where you're done with sin, you're done with the world, you're done with the flesh, you're done with the devil. You make the decision, I will serve Jesus. Wow. It's very freeing. It is freeing. Well, you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. And this broadcast is a faith broadcast. We do not have the ability to pay for the radio broadcast, but thank you to many of you who contribute. We went to the post office the last two days and there was nothing in the mailbox and we just praised Jesus and said, thank you, Lord, for what's there and what's not there. But we trust Jesus to move in your heart to give. You can mail your offering to the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Again, it's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. And you can also visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. There you will be able to donate, or you can listen to many sermons and read many blog posts. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter under National Prayer Chapel. So today, I pray our testimonies have helped you and encouraged you to absolutely leave your sin and come into the presence of Jesus. Look at our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. You'll find directions. You can find us if you're really hungry and you really want to come. We love you. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley. And I'm Alexandra. We're from the National Prayer Chapel. We love you. God bless you. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. Before the presence of His glory with great joy, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's Dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 